in, in college, there's a word called audit. When you audit a class. And when you audit a class, you get the information, but you're not responsible for the work. And that's okay as long as you don't want any credit for it. What I see happening oftentimes in our lives is we want to audit the Christian life. We want the information, but we don't want to have to be responsible for the work. And when we get the information, but not responsible for the work, it doesn't count. You understand what I'm saying? Today I want to talk about, as we wrap up this series, songs we're singing. Work that God has already put in, and now he's invited us to follow his lead. Not just for information, but for transformation. And so we're going to jump into, in our final installment of songs we're singing, singing in Psalm 130, Verses three through five. And I'm going to talk about these three little verses pretty briefly and use them as a springboard into a passage in the New Testament where these verses put on flesh. So the Bible says in Psalm 130, verses three through five, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word I put my hope. We're going to see in the New Testament where this, where these verses, and when it talks about, how it talks about God, we're going to see it with flesh. But let's understand verse 3. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? See, the mercy of God is seen in his forgiveness. God's mercy does not keep our sins on his mind. Because if it did, who could stand before him? If God were to keep the record of our sins and hold us perpetually accountable for them, there's no hope. Now, let me be clear. Our sin must be accounted for. And so we have an option in giving account for our sin. Now, let me just define sin real quick. Sin is anything that's outside of or contrary to God's divine, holy, perfect standard. So any activity, any words, any attitude, any response, any social media, I mean, like anything that's outside of or contrary to God's holy standard is sin. And sin must be accounted for. Now, our two options in giving account for our sins are one, to bear responsibility for them ourselves. And to say, I think I've lived a good enough life to stand before a holy almighty God and be okay. 
The second option is to allow Jesus' work on the cross that is, serves as our justification and allow him to take our responsibility. One of those choices is really wise. The other of those choices is really foolish. Here's the truth. Sin is never not costly. Sin is never not costly. It's just the caveat for the Christ follower is we understand and have allowed Jesus to pay the cost. So it costs him. And it remains on our account unless we've accepted Jesus' payment for our sin by faith because of his grace and have repented of it. Now, 1 Corinthians, a great love chapter in the Bible, says love keeps no record of wrongs. God keeps no record of wrongs because he is perfect love. Now, others in your life might keep a record of wrongs, but, but love doesn't. And so if you have those people in your life who enjoy recounting your sins and your injustices and your offenses... They may call themselves a friend, but they're not acting in love. And I praise God, God doesn't act that way towards us. Do you understand? If you, Lord, kept a record of my sin, I couldn't stand. But with you, there's forgiveness. So we can serve you. With you, there is forgiveness, not so that I can be okay with my past. With you, there is forgiveness, not so that I can feel good and relieve my guilt. With you, there is forgiveness for one reason, that I may stand and serve you. No, Hear me on this. No one falls from grace because of sin when they repent. The only way the Bible talks about people falling from grace is in the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verse 4, when the apostle Paul says, we have fallen from grace when we try to be right with God by our behavior. He says, when you try to be justified with God because of your sin by your behavior, you have now fallen from God's grace. And if I were a betting man, I'd bet that every one of us in this place have fallen from grace. Because at some level, there's something in us that at some point has believed that we could stand right before God because we haven't screwed up too badly. And the moment we substitute his grace for our behavior, We have all fallen from grace. Do you understand? God forgives so that we're not fallen and so that we're not canceled. God's calling and his gifting, the Bible says, are irrevocable and without repentance. Here's what that means. At no point does God look at Carl and think, Dad, gum it. 
I called this boy when he was young and he done screwed up. I didn't see that coming. And now I repent for having called him. The Bible says God's calling and his giftings are irrevocable and without his repentance. Here's what that means. That means when God looks at you and that when God looks at me, we would view ourselves as I don't know if God can really do something significant in and through my life because I have messed up so bad. I hope I kind of get in under the radar and he lets me into heaven because I've had a bad. And God says, that ain't the way I work. My call on your life. And my giftings in your life are irrevocable. And I will never repent from calling you and gifting you. And I will forgive you, not so that you can feel good about yourself. I will forgive you so that you can serve me with the calling and gifting I've already given that is irrevocable. Do you understand? The English Standard Version, the ESV Version, says that God is feared. With you there's forgiveness, and I will fear you. See, God is to be feared, not only because he judges sin, and not only because his judgment is harsh. God judges sin very harshly. If you want to know how harshly God has judged sin, look at the cross. God has judged my sin and your sin so harshly, it cost him the very life of his son. Now here's the deal. I got three boys, and ain't none of them I'm willing to sacrifice. But God has judged sin so harshly, he sacrificed his son. And so he's to be feared. Because of his judgment and because of his harsh judgment of sin. But he's also to be feared because of his love. He, he, he's to be feared because his love is so ferocious for his children. It is fearful how ferocious God's love is towards his kids. And it is fearful when others hold against his kids, their sins, whom he loves ferociously. Do you understand? You want to put yourself between God and his love for his kid for their mess-ups when God hasn't, hasn't even chose to hold it? You want to put yourself between him and his kid? If God doesn't hold his sin against his children, boy, it's a fearful thing to do so yourself. Do you understand? Tracking with me so far? Yeah. It is scary how much God loves his kids, and his love is always shown in mercy and forgiveness. Always. I had someone ask me just last week, and it kind of prompted a little bit of this message. They asked me, is there anywhere in the Bible ever when someone asked forgiveness of God, and he said no? They're dealing with something. And the truth is, there's nowhere in Scripture where someone asks forgiveness of God, and he says, no, you're too far gone. His love's ferocious. We dare not put ourselves between God and his children. 
I wait for the Lord. And in his word, I put my hope. When, when the writer, if you were to read that chapter, this section, in his totality, you'd understand that what the writer, that what the writer's saying is this. He says, I know that you're merciful and forgiving, but I need to see the signs of it in my life. Like it's theory. I know it's true. I got it. I know what the Bible says, but I got to see it now. It's one thing for you to tell me that God is merciful and forgiving. It's something wholly different for me to experience it. And God, I'll wait on your word to see it and to feel it. But God, you've got to show it to me. He says, I will submit to you because you overthrow flow with grace. But God, I've got to see signs of it. It means nothing if I don't see signs of it. And as I was thinking about this passage, I thought, well, this is all good in theory, but where does it have flesh? Where does it have bones? Where does it bleed? Where does it live in life? John 8 is Psalm 130, 3 through 5, with flesh on. Some of you probably have heard the story of John 8, the beginnings of it. I want to read it to you. It's the story of Psalm 130, 3 through 5, in the flesh. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say about it? Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now. Leave your life of sin. As I was reading through this and thinking through this and praying through this again this morning, it was right here down on, sitting on that chair before I got up to preach that something jumped out at me. The Bible says that this group of guys brought this woman before the group. You know why they brought her before the group? Because they were focused on her shame. Not on her redemption. What they were doing was actually a violation of the ethic of love of which Jesus had preached and exemplified. I wonder how many times 
We don't mind exposing others' guilt to the group. The scene is pretty self-explanatory, but the background needs some explanation. In the Old Testament law, adultery was dealt with very harshly. Leviticus 20, verse 10, and Deuteronomy 22, 22. And the law demanded death for adultery. Now slow down, though, because the law also demanded death for the lazy, fat, drunk son. I wonder how many of us would be here. And if you're a good girl and you've never been a lazy, fat, drunk son, understand the law also demanded death for disobedient children. Heather would not be here. <laughs> the interesting thing in Old Testament law is that both the man and the woman were to be put to death. Now the Bible says that she was caught in the act. The only way you catch one in the act of adultery is to also catch the other in the act of adultery. You understand? But who do they bring before Jesus? Both the man and the woman? No, just the woman. The Bible says those who brought this woman to Jesus, one group of them were the teachers of the law. These were the religious lawyers. And they had no authority to make adjudication. They had really no authority to make, uh, um, to translate the law. They just had the authority to interpret the law and they interpreted what the law said correctly. Law calls for death. The other group were the Pharisees and the Pharisees held this strict observant to the, uh, the traditional and written law according to its very strict moral code. And they saw themselves as morally superior it's very interesting to me that between the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, it kind of exposes what religious people do. Religious people are very concerned with some aspects of the law, but they let others slide. And we tend to do, us religious people tend to do that most in our own lives. Right? These religious people wanted to level the law against this woman. And they were right legally. Because the law always screams, I will punish you and I will condemn you because of what you have done. And the law continually screams, death, death, death. And I want us to notice in this account that Jesus agrees that she is guilty. Jesus never changes the standard of what sin is, nor its consequence. Sin is always sin. But if Jesus doesn't change the standard for what sin is, what does he do? What did he do? You're going to make me start this sermon all over again. What did he do? They brought her, they gave the charge, they were legally correct according to the law, and immediately what did Jesus do? He didn't forgive her. 
Immediately, what did he do? He wrote in the dirt. What did he write in the dirt? We're not told. I'm glad we're not told. Here's my take on it. He wrote in the dirt simply a list of Old Testament law. And he just let them read the Old Testament law. And in reading the Old Testament law, he tells them again, any of y'all who had broken this, go ahead and start hucking rocks. But understand, some are probably going to come back on you. I love the fact, see, I don't think Jesus wrote their sins. A lot of people say he was writing the sins he knew that they were guilty of. I don't think, that's, I don't think that happened. I can't prove it. That's just my take on Scripture. I, 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 I think, and here's why. I, I love the fact that in my mind, he didn't, he didn't write their sins because that would be contrary to the heart of God. Because what did we just read about the heart of God? That he doesn't remember the sins of his kids. These are part of his kids. I think he just wrote sins. He just wrote what the law was. He just reminded them what sin is. And then Jesus let the Holy Spirit convict them of theirs. Here's the thing, please understand this, that God doesn't need a moral police force to do his bidding. He's got one, and it's called the Holy Spirit. And under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, who points out sin in our lives, the old fellows walk away first. Why? They have more sin? Someone said that in the first verse. How jaded is that? You people are just jaded. They're older, they're more sinful. That's just the way life works. Wow, man. Ah, that makes me feel terrible. Uh, even if it's, it might be right, but it just makes me feel bad. Here's why I think the older ones went away first. Because they had some maturity with them. And the younger ones, freaking immature ones, that want to hold on to her offense longer. Because that's what immaturity does. And the problem is, most churches are comprised of adolescent Christians, no matter how long they've been yeah. saved. Yeah. Eventually they all walk away. And the guilty, the guilty person, because she is guilty, is standing there with Jesus. And here's what I want you to know. Jesus always remains with the guilty. Jesus always remains with the guilty party. Yeah. He never walks away with a self-righteous mob. I love the fact that Jesus never asked for proof of the legitimacy of the claim. Here's why. Because he was more concerned with the sin of their self-righteousness than with the sin of her adultery. The details didn't matter to him. Jesus never asked about the man who was involved. Because the details of the situation didn't matter to him. The main issue was not the details of the sin. The main issue was the expression of his grace. Yes. Do you understand?
And I know this is a tough message, but just hang with me. It's going to get good pretty soon. As I look at this account, this is what I see. Jesus is not against the law. He's not at all against the law. Sin is sin. But Jesus is merciful towards a woman. And the law is never. And Jesus still opposed the sin, but he didn't oppose the woman. And Jesus silenced those who put law over grace. Don't audit the Christian faith. Jesus shamed into silence those who would shame the woman for her sin. And Jesus removed the condemnation that the law would place on her. And then he told her, now, leave your life of sin. This woman, for this woman, this was not a one-time act. This was not a mistake. This was a life. This was no little thing for Jesus to forgive. We understand that, right? And the implications that this woman went and changed her life. What is the impetus for the transformation of her life? This woman was transformed not because of the threat or the execution of punishment. This woman was transformed as a result of grace. This is what's concerning within the church. Especially when we're the ones in a relationship that have been sinned against. What we want is someone to make a right. And if making a right means that they got to suffer a little bit, so be it. You transgress the law. But what transforms a life is not judgment. What always transforms a life is See, grace shifts the motivation. The motivation for her transformation was the goodness of God that was given to the guilty who admit the lordship of Jesus and repent of sin. That's the motivation for her transformation. How many people before her had, been, had the law leveled against them? This transformation, the motivation for her transformation was the goodness of God that was given to the guilty who had admitted the lordship of Jesus and repented. I want you to notice something. When the group of guys that brought this woman to Jesus spoke to Jesus, they used what title? They called him what? Teacher. They said, teacher, the law says, please don't miss this. They taught to Jesus from the perspective of their position, teacher, law. When the woman spoke to Jesus, she addressed him as what? Lord. 
Why? Because she also, like them, spoke to Jesus from the perspective of her position. They looked at him as teacher according to the law. She looked at him as Lord, as my master, to whom I will submit as a submitted sinner. And because she took the position as a submitted sinner and called him Lord, she was freed. Sin must be addressed. And when we address it because of the cross, the death and resurrection, the shed blood of Jesus, and repent, Jesus says, I take away your guilt and shame. And I don't remember it anymore. She was able to leave her life of sin because of grace, because grace transforms. The grace of God does not remember the record of my sin nor your sin when we repent of it. And the grace of God causes us to respond to Jesus based on what could have happened that didn't happen. We have not reaped everything we've sown. And because of God's grace that holds back what we deserve, we respond in grace for the transformation of life. Do you understand? Jesus held back from this woman what her sins deserved. Now, I know some of you know how painful this story is is. And for some of you, this is not a story that you read in the Bible. This has been a history that you have lived. And I wonder, could we not hold this against that person? Understand how profound this story is in John 8. It sounds wonderful when Jesus could do this for this woman, but if it's you and me, the Christian life is not to be audited. I don't know if you noticed this, but this woman's name was never used. I find this significant, and here's why. Did God not know her name so he couldn't record it? Huh? Of course not. Here, here's what I think. It's just me again. I think the reason God didn't allow her name to be used, because then she would always be known by her sin. It would always be Peggy the adulteress. And so he says, I don't want you to know her name. You don't have to know her name. Here's why. Because God doesn't want her to remember for her sin. God wants to remember for his grace. Thank you, Cam. I think God said, if I tell you her name, all you're going to remember is her name. And they're going to start referring to people according to her name when they sin. 
He said, that's not what you got to, you got to keep on your mind, not hers. You got to keep my grace. See, here's what I know. In light of our sin, you and I, see if this isn't true. You know exactly what I'm talking about in your life. You know exactly what I'm talking about. We wish we could go back and do things differently. Right? There's some of those things that we wish we could get a... God, if you could just allow me to do something different. We're remorseful of how things went down. We're saddened. But we can't change the past. And so we're forced to live in it. And so here's our prayer. I told you I'm going to give you a prayer. You've got eight prayers now. This one's real simple. Lord, I wish I could change yesterday, but I cannot. I want whatever your grace will allow me to have today. God's grace will either absolutely remove every consequence or it will mute the consequence you face or it will give you strength to thrive through it. So, Father, I wish I could go back and change. I cannot. I just ask for whatever grace will allow me to have today. One final thing. There's another portion of Old Testament law dealing with adultery. And it's dealing with suspected adultery. Numbers 5, verses 11 through 31, where someone is expected of this sin. But there's no proof. There's no witnesses. There's just suspect, accusation, And if the charges are denied, this is according to the Bible. If the charges are denied, they, the person goes through this long ritual of going before God, before the priest, and making offerings. And the priest, in hearing this charge and the denial of it, takes a, a bowl of water and bends down and gets dirt from the floor of the and puts it in the water and mixes it up and makes the water bitter water. And then the priest, is all in the Bible. It's crazy stuff. Have you ever read the Bible? There's some crazy stuff in there. And then the priest takes a scroll and writes out the curses for adultery and scrapes off the ink into the bowl of dirty water and mixes it all up and makes the person drink it. And the idea being, if the person is guilty, even though they've denied it, their stomach will swell and they'll get sick. And if the woman is pregnant from the adultery, her womb, she'll miscarriage. And forever she'll be barren. That's in the Bible. Now, it's actually pretty merciful. Because at least she didn't die. 
And it's in keeping with the customs of the day, both, both in ancient times and biblical times and all the way through the 10th century. There were these things called guilt ordeals. When one was charged with a crime or charged with a sin, and some of them were absolutely horrid, not like drinking some dirty water. Give me a break. We do, if you live in you know, Hanford, that's every day. Some of these guilt ordeals, they would tie a huge rock to a person and throw them in a river. And if they drowned, they were guilty. And if they ended up surviving and getting free, then they're innocent and go about your life. Some of them heated up iron and made people carry iron, like red hot glowing iron, nine feet. And if they weren't burned, they were innocent. They're just ridiculous stuff. And so this is actually pretty, pretty mild. But here's the point. That may have been Old Testament law. That may have been. But Jesus came to fulfill that law. Not to cancel it. There's still consequence. He just bears it and fulfills it. The Old Testament talks over and over and over about the cup of God's wrath poured out on people because of sin and non-repentance. Jeremiah 25, Isaiah 51, Lamentations 4, over and over and over. The cup of God's wrath, the cup of God's wrath, the cup of God's wrath. Punishment on man's sin because of unrepentance, but Jesus came to fulfill the law. So here's what it looks like in the New Testament. Going a little further, Jesus fell down with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup what cup the, the cup of God's wrath may this cup be taken from me yet not as I will as you will so Jesus has stepped in yes. and that cup of bitter water and the cup of God's wrath Jesus has drink on our behalf so then therefore he doesn't have to remember our sin. See, Jesus looks at us and he says, I've done this for you. Come to me in faith because of my grace. And we can stand. Though guilty, yes. Though what the law says about us, absolutely. But we can stand before God because Jesus has drunk our cup of suffering for us. And he has not asked us to do it again. And he has not commanded us to make sure others do it either. Here's the idea. Some of y'all have really nice clothes. And when you have really nice clothes, when they get soiled, what do you do with your really nice clothes? You don't put them in the washing machine. If they're really nice clothes, what do you have to do? You got to tame the cleaner. That's why I say some of you have nice clothes. When our clothes get soiled, the really good ones get soiled, we got to take them to the cleaner and get them cleaned by something outside of ourselves. Now, the Bible talks about our lives and our deeds as coverings. 
And the coverings of our lives get soiled and dirty because of our sin. And sometimes that sin, all the time that sin, cannot be cleaned with ourselves. And we got to go to the cleaner to get them professionally done. And God offers this cleaning service, this professional cleaning service that cleanses us of our sin and makes us pure and, and, good and holy before him. And the Bible talks about it as being covered in his righteousness, these new bright clothes of his righteousness because of his grace. Isaiah 61.10 says that God covers us with his righteousness by his grace. Here's why God does it. Because if God left us in the memory and his memory of our sin, we would forever be covered, soiled. But God does this. Because he wants us to cover us with the new clothes of his grace, not in our dirty, soiled coverings of our sin. Here's why. The reason God wants to cover us with the new clothes of his grace is so that we look good. Do you know why God wants us to look good? The reason why God wants us to look good is so that those around us who have seen our dirt will now see his covering. All right, all right. Do you understand? Yeah, yeah. He says, I want you to look so good. Yeah. I want you to be so well-dressed yeah. that your life shows me off. All right, all right, all right. God says, I don't want to show off your sin. Mm. I will not keep a record of it. Mm-hmm. I want to show off my grace. Yeah. And so God looks at us and he says, I'm going to tell you this. If anybody from your past wants to come into your present and start talking about who you used to be, if anybody from your history wants to come in your today and talk about what you did in your past, if anybody from your history wants to come into your moment now and start talking about what the law requires because of what you did in the past, God says, just show them the new coverings of my grace. Amen. I have not counted it against you. Don't let them count it against you. I've not kept a record of your wrongs, so don't listen to anybody else who keeps a record of your your wrongs. Yes. Yes. Do you understand? Yes. Understand. And this is why Jesus says to the guilty who admit our sin and who live in repentance of it, I do not condemn you any longer. Now leave your life of sin. Yes. So that's why he says, I've drunk the cup of suffering so you don't have to. Yes. This is why he says, I've covered you with clean clothes. Of my grace. And now, in forgiveness and repentance because of God's mercy and grace, we, in the words of the great theologian, Billy Crystal, you look marvelous, my darling. Do you understand? When God looks at us, He says, Oh, you're beautiful. You're marvelous. You're exactly who I created you to be. Amen. Don't audit the Christian life. This grace has been given. And give it to each other. 
And in this moment, stand in the forgiveness of God and experience the amazing grace of the Almighty. I want you to pray with me. Father, thank you. God, I thank you that you didn't tell us the name of that woman. I thank you that you just showed us your grace. Father, I thank you for her faith to respond to your lordship. That gives us a model. Father, forgive us for when we have thrown stones rather than enthrone grace. Father, there are some in this place right now who have lived with the shame of their past, whose ghosts and skeletons still rattle in their heads. And you've determined it ought not be that way. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. And thank you for covering us with new clothes. Friends, I'm not going to rush this moment. I'm going to give you an opportunity. Just stay in this place for a little bit. I'd encourage you, between you and the Father, Say, God, I'm sorry for my sin. I admit I'm dirty and I'm soiled because of sin. Jesus, thank you that you died on the cross so I could be right with you. Jesus, I make you the Lord of my life. Thank you that you don't remember my sin. Let me stand before you, new and clean, serving you. Tell him I accept your grace. As you've not held my sin against me, I will not hold others against them. Give us freedom. Freedom. And let us live in the freedom of your grace. Father, I thank you for the amazing grace that has covered our sin. I thank you for the amazing grace that's stronger 
than any work of the evil one against us. I thank you for an amazing grace that have canceled the consequence of sin. I thank you for an amazing grace that is stronger than our past, that secures our future. I thank you for an amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Father, I once was lost, but now am found. I once was blind, but now I see. And should I live a thousand years in heaven, I will not cease to proclaim this amazing grace, God, that you have lavished upon us. We love you, Jesus. You're so good. Amen.